Before we um, enter into our uh, scripture reading and time uh, in which we can hear God's word, I, I want to take uh, the special opportunity to make an introduction um, to you all. Um, each year we have the joy and the honor to uh, host a pastoral intern from Duke. Um, each year it's uh, someone different with uh, different gifts and part, especially uh, in the early part of this academic year, our job will be to discern well what those gifts are and where they fit and how they're mobilized for the sake of our church and our neighbors. Uh, and so this year, our pastoral intern for Oak Church is Yudai Chiba, and uh, we're so uh, glad that he is with us. I think uh, it, it's funny when I when I got to meet uh, Udai last week, he said, oh, I, I think I, I know several Oak people. I just didn't know they were Oak people. Uh, and so uh, hopefully those uh, of you who know him will uh, continue to get to work uh, with him and alongside him and for everyone else, uh, get to get to meet him for the first time. So Yuda, uh, I'll pass it over to you. I'd love for you to uh, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself um, and uh, some of the things that you enjoy and some of the things that you're hoping for this coming year. Yeah, um, thank you. Um, nice to meet you all. Uh, like Pastor Chris mentioned, uh, my name is Yudai, and I do know a number of you. And uh, um, i currently a second uh, second year at Duke Divinity School. So um, yeah, I've, um, I see classmates, I see a few preceptors, well, one preceptor. <laughs> and uh, um, I live in the same neighborhood as uh, I think Marcus and Nate. Um, live in a place called, <laughs> hey Marcus, uh, I haven't seen you in a while actually, but uh, uh, yeah. So yeah, um, it's good to be here. And um, I originally, I don't know where I'm from originally, actually. I grew up in Indiana. Um, I went to uh, Japan after I graduated college. And I lived in Japan for about nine years before coming to Duke. And so um, I'm still, I feel like I'm still readjusting to American life. And uh, it's definitely my first time living in the South as well. And um, yeah, I, I've always sort of been part of a small non-denominational church um in japan and uh so yeah uh, i think part of my mission has really been to try to s see other christians in different um types of church contexts so um i'm really looking forward to uh, getting to know the oak community and i think yeah i mean i guess my um you know if i were totally honest uh, there weren't there aren't like a there isn't like a really specific set of like you know hopes and whatnot that I have uh, for this academic year. Uh, I, just, I just hope that um, God will keep my heart open to what this congregation, um, how God speaks through this congregation. Um, I do hope to have, uh, I hope that I'll have a chance to preach and to um, work on that, pre work on my preaching. Um, I hope, and I just really hope to have the opportunity to actually read the Bible. Um, with uh, folk of this church and yeah um i i mentioned this earlier to some of the people who were here earlier but i wrote this uh if any of you saw like that brief intro profile on 
that I, I wrote to introduce myself on the website. Uh, I wrote this total lie about like, uh, oh, I listened to We have a time for confession later. If, if you... <laughs> okay. Maybe we'll skip that for now. But I just want to say uh, uh, thank you to the worship group. Uh, Y'all sound amazing. Um, I, and that's, that's very soul filling. Thank you. So, yeah. Excellent. And, you know, we're, we're really honored to uh, have you to be a part of your formation and process and um, to uh, get to be a part of uh, the Duke community and, and, um, in, in uh, learning uh, from you and with you. So um, uh, feel free uh, y'all to continue to get to know Udai and uh, you, you can drop him uh, notes um, either in the chat section here or his email address is uh, Udai at oakdurham.org. So uh, Udai, I'm gonna ask you if you would, if you'd read our gospel reading for today. Okay, this is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, uh, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Should I forgive as many as seven times? Jesus said, not just seven times, but rather as many as 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, they brought to him a servant who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Because the servant didn't have enough to pay it back, the master ordered that he should be sold, along with his wife and children and everything he had, and that the proceeds should be used as payment. But the servant fell down and kneeled before him and said, Please be patient with me, and I'll pay you back. The master had compassion on that servant, released him, and forgave the loan. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 coins. He grabbed him around the throat and said, Pay me back what you owe me. Then his fellow servant fell down and begged him, Be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he threw him into prison until he paid back his debt. When his fellow servants saw what happened, they were deeply offended. They came and told their master all that happened. His master called the first servant and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you appealed to me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servant? just as I had mercy on you? His master was furious and handed him over to the guard responsible for punishing prisoners until he had paid the whole debt. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if you don't forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Thanks, you died. So I'm sure this week has had us all doing some remembering. Uh, I'll never forget that 19 years ago this week, I was a freshman, a freshman in college. And I'll never forget coming back to the dorm from my early class, which 
I think that in hindsight, that early class was probably a huge mistake because 8.30 didn't seem that early when you're used to getting up at 6 a.m. in high school, but I hadn't yet factored in for college time. I'll never forget walking back into my dorm and there was this big dorm common area at Osceola Hall uh, with a big screen TV and everyone was starting to gather to watch the developing situation. And at that time there were no there was no like smartphones or flip phones and um, there's no Twitter. So news happened kind of on a lag and it always happened with others. You found out about things by word of mouth. I'll never forget it starting to dawn on me um, that these smoking towers weren't by accident and that the world that I had known as a 19 year old um, wasn't as safe or buffered as I thought it was. It now had a puncture in it. And this is probably not a new thought for most 19-year-olds around the world and throughout time, but it was new to me. I'll never forget, around this time I was be, becoming a serious Christian, and I'll never forget that I also um, had to learn a new vocabulary, a vocabulary of lament that was forged at candlelight vigils with people that I barely knew. And a lot of these people that were expressing lament were not the most reliable prayer types, um, but they kind of seemed to get it in a way that I didn't, or in a way that the people at the Baptist church that I went to at the time didn't quite have a frame for. I'll never forget that some of the friendships of this time were forged in this sorrow. Like I had a random roommate who was from a Jersey suburb with a view of the city and he had an Egyptian name and now he would become immediately other because of that name. I had a friend, a believer who I barely knew, but she was from my hometown and she became like family. I'll never forget the country that we lived in then and not to romanticize because it's always tempting to look at with rose-colored hindsight glasses, but at least it seemed like we lived in a country that knew that we should be grieving together. We could agree that grief was appropriate. Who, you know, we didn't necessarily agree on how to respond to this event, but we didn't have much of a problem pausing to acknowledge how much all of this hurt. Apologies if this sort of never forget exercise didn't focus on kind of the main talking points. It doesn't make me any less grateful for first responders or servicemen and women, but remembering well requires you to remember your personal details, where you were, to chart out the contours of the moment. Sometimes those details come to mean different things over the years, like I doubt I would have had some of the same appreciation for some of these memories five years ago or let alone 15 years ago. In the Bible, memory is an important skill. It is a way of knowing and telling the truth about God and ourselves. Even as the Israelites received their law, what we call the Ten Commandments, they were to remember the God who gave them the law, the same God who, quote, brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Before they got any instructions on what to and what not to do, their ability to be faithful 
to be grafted into God's faithfulness was predicated on their own memory of their emancipation, and more importantly, their memory of their liberator. Memory also plays a big role as you flash forward to Christ on the cross. That's a painful and traumatic memory if there ever was one. But it's a memory around which the Christian faith is built. We dwell on Christ's death on the cross. We return to it over and over. We sing songs about keeping us near the cross. We rehearse that death each week, as Pastor Meg will do uh, in a moment. The memory of that suffering in death is part of our healing. And that's not because of any like magical justification powers that happened that's there that set us right with God, but because of the practical living that comes out of never forgetting. There's a theologian named Miroslav Volf, and he grew up in the former Yugoslavia and witnessed violence and suffering up close, and he puts it this way. He says, through my memory of the passion, God can purify my memory of wrongs suffered because my identity stems neither from the wrongdoing done to me, which would require the perpetual accusation of my wrongdoer, nor from my own false innocence, which would lead me to illegitimate self-justification. In some real sense, if we were to forget the contours of mercy, we could forego the practice of mercy. So we, we turn to Matthew's gospel, what uh, Udai just read and where Justin left off last week, and you have Peter asking Jesus about forgiveness. We just heard um, Jesus talking about conflict in the church. Remember, if someone wrongs you, you take it to them, and then you bring someone with you, and then you bring it to everyone else in the church, and if that person is still unresponsive, you treat them, quote, like tax collectors and Gentiles, which Justin unfolded for us the way that God in Christ chooses to treat tax collectors and Gentiles, i.e. never giving up on them or on us. And so here in our episode, it feels like Peter is kind of looking for some boundaries. Peter's looking for a way out. Surely Jesus can't be that serious that forgiveness is an end unto itself. There's got to be a point in which it doesn't any longer work or in which it's not worth it. Peter thought that he was being generous by saying, uh, how about seven times? It's a manageable number to wrap your mind around. You can count it on two hands. And uh, it's certainly a challenge to forgive someone of the same thing seven times, but um, it's going to require some patience and virtue, but it's kind of, it's doable, right? And then Jesus ups the stakes. And there's a little bit of uh, dispute on how to translate just how he upped the stakes. 
But long story short, he says not seven times, but seven times seven times, or maybe 77 times, or possibly even 70 times seven. Is Jesus being absurd? Is Jesus like purposely obfuscating? Like maybe, but maybe he's calling Peter and remember, Peter's a good Jew. Maybe he's calling Peter to remember. Maybe he's asking Peter to remember the, the Jewish people, God's people's, like Russian nesting doll existence in this like matrix of forgiveness. You see, God's people organized their lives around these sevens. Every seven days, they'd observe a Sabbath. And every seven years, you would um, take that reliance on God for rest and food, and you would expand on it. You would take a break from empire building in order to experience kingdom living. So you, you, you'd go from the building block of Sabbath onto the seven years sabbatical feast and fast in a similar pattern, and it would prime your memory to uh, deeply recall God's presence and mercy. And then on that seven times seventh year, the 49th year, after 49 years, you have the 50th year of Jubilee, this year of remittance, the year of the Lord's favor. It's a reset year by which all debts might be forgiven, all land returned to previous owners and all slaves would be manumitted. Jesus takes Peter's question about the limits of forgiveness and turns it into an issue of memory and mercy. Remembering God's mercy is so important to Jesus. And remembering God's mercy really well might mean that it becomes like the wallpaper that we never even see, because isn't that a little how God is merciful? God is so merciful and so steadily merciful to us that we forget about it. We take it for granted. I wonder at times if we were to do mercy right individually or as a body, or even as a wider body in the church, if we were to do this kind of mercy right, like God's mercy, it might get mistaken. It might get forgotten, and it might get mistaken for weakness or disengagement or aloofness just because we're choosing not to fight back. We're choosing not to defend ourselves. We're choosing not to win every battle or have every hot take, like, it would be great if the church's mercy and forgiveness could be like the God in whom we live and move and have our being in that our mercy could be taken for granted. Our mercy could be forgotten. But I don't think, well, I'll speak for myself. I don't think I'm there yet. So like any good exercise, we'll need to rep it seven times or 49 times or 70 times or 490 times or 4,900 times is plenty of mercy practice. And practice makes perfect as God is perfect.
And uh, I couldn't help but kind of paraphrase this strange idea that Jesus is introducing here in the words of Isaiah 55, which might be familiar to us, uh, verses 8 and 9. My paraphrase would be, and this is God speaking, my desire for mercy isn't your desire for mercy, nor are your concrete ways of forgiving my concrete ways of forgiving, says the Lord. Just as the heavens are exponentially higher than the earth, so are my ways exponentially higher than your ways, and my plans exponentially greater than your plans. So if seven sounds outlandish, start thinking seven squared. And if that starts to sound reasonable, think about 70 squared. That should keep you busy for a while. These are God's ways. Another kind of image I have of this is uh, set up in the parable is that, that God's kingdom is mercy all the way down from the the top down, from the bottom up, and every grade in between. Every strata in between is supposed to be mercy all the way down. And if God's kingdom is mercy all the way down, that makes us somewhere midstream and our opportunities for mercy will be plenteous. And all of the small chances we have in these hidden moments of our days might actually be the spirit building in us a capacity to be the sort of people who can receive mercy from others with repentance and gratefulness. And there'll be the spirit building in us a capacity also to offer mercy to others without any assurance of repentance or gratefulness. Because to do so still doesn't make any sense except that it's what God is like. Offering mercy, giving freely. And we've seen and we've experienced this way, capital W way, in three dimensions when we see and know Jesus. God gives mercifully, and we've seen it in Jesus, the image of the invisible God. Then Jesus tells Peter a story about remembering mercy, that parable. And it features a king who forgives a great debt. This is one of those cases where our translations sort of uh, don't don't help us a whole lot because we we don't use the same monetary units of measurement. So it's it's hard to to know the scale that it's talking about. We don't understand just how absurd this debt is that this king forgives. Long story short, the king forgives the single servant, basically the the GDP of a small country. This is a massive debt. This is a unpaybackable debt. And then we're told that the same, quote, the same slave turned around and wouldn't forgive a few months' wages to, quote, a fellow slave. The same slave wouldn't turn around and forgive a much, much, much smaller debt to a fellow slave. I'm not sure if it occurred to this character in the story that they had a fellowship in their debt. He just knew he had money out on the street that he needed to get back. There seems to be 
for that first slave, the, the forgiven slave, there seems to be a short-term memory problem. He forgot the contours of mercy, the contours of the mercy that he'd received. His memory problem was such that he couldn't even remember his own plea when he heard it voiced back to him by the person he wouldn't forgive. The same line that he gave the king, have patience with me and I will repay you, which was for him not true. He couldn't hear it when the person who owed him said it back to him, have patience with me and I will repay you. So he threw the servant in prison and it's like kind of one of those like squeezing blood from a stone tactics. That's not altogether unfamiliar with our own legal system where we often punish indebtedness with a spiral of more indebtedness. Upon hearing this, the king judges and punishes the middleman's forgetfulness of mercy harshly. He'd interrupted the flow of mercy. His failure to remember disrupted forgiveness. You see, the first forgiveness makes possible the second forgiveness. Mercy begets mercy, and to interrupt that is truly anti-Christian. To pretend that you still need to collect on minor debts after having your massive debt wiped out is to deny grace and is to ignore mercy and is to be conformed to the patterns of this world rather than transformed by the renewal of our minds. That's what Romans 12 invites us into. I hope you're hearing in this an echo of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. It's a prayer that we sang earlier with Katie. Again, this is a good byproduct of our Scriptio Divina, our writing out the Gospel of Matthew. Because earlier in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has all of his followers beseech the Heavenly Father to, quote, remit us our debts as we remit those who hold debts against us. It's probably not how your translation put it. Maybe yours has forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But maybe it's important to think of this in terms of debt. This sort of sin as debt is tricky to us because it not only unearths in us how protective we are, you kind of get that when you say forgive us our trespasses where we don't want anyone to trespass against us to come into our personal space. So we're protective. And when you talk about forgive us our debts, it also unveils how possessive we are. How we don't want anyone messing with our money or our stuff. There's almost like an Ikea effect when we talk about sin as death. Do you know what the Ikea effect is? It's um, It's like a sociological experiment where um, you'll if you build something like a piece of Ikea furniture, you'll overvalue it because you're, you're invested in it and kind of have this time and memory sunk into it. But it almost feels like that. um, When, when we talk about money, like I'm in a lot of ways, happy to forgive you um, of the hurt feelings that you cause, 
But if you owe me money, that is really going to bother me in a way that is above and beyond hurtful to me um, and, and doesn't uh, let me trust you uh, anymore. So uh, pay attention to those feelings. You, you can even see it play out in our politics when we start to talk about money and forgiveness and messing with the, uh, the system of, of credit and debits. Uh, people start to get their their hackles raised a little bit more, right? It's no longer hypothetical, it's real. So following the logic of this parable and following the logic of the Lord's Prayer, if we don't forgive, we're actually in danger of becoming like debt slavers when we sin by not forgiving others. It feels important to notice the location of sin here. What the parable is saying and, and what the, the prayer is saying is that it is, our, it is not our indebtedness, it's not us owing a lot of money that is called sin here. It's our not forgiving other people's debt that is called sin. The punishment comes for the unforgiver, not the unforgiving. This makes me this makes me wonder. Again, I'm going to drift into godly play mode here and, and wonder some questions about this story. It makes me wonder where I am in this story most often. It makes me wonder, you can wonder along with me, it makes me wonder when do I forgive easily? It makes me wonder what are the circumstances that I don't forgive easily? It makes me wonder and remember about times that I've been forgiven by God, by people, by those close to me, by strangers. It makes me wonder when I've been frustrated by someone else's withholding forgiveness of me. And it makes me remember what that feels like. It makes me remember the details of great forgiveness, those contours, those emotions, those feelings, those specific details about what forgiveness feels like and tastes like and is like. I wonder if this drastic turn at the end of the story when it starts to get kind of violent and kind of judgy, I wonder if it's less of an outright punishment and more of the king saying to the middleman, sure, have it your way. I showed you a world of grace and mercy, but you prefer an exacting world of unforgiveness and punishment. Have at it. I'm going to close with a, a poem that I remembered uh, by Wendell Berry. And it's about enemies and it's about forgiveness and it's about the monstrosity of unforgiveness. So here's what, where I'll close. I'll read it and then we'll pray together. This is called Enemies by Wendell Berry. If you are not to become a monster, you must care what they think. And if you care what they think, how will you not hate them and so become a monster of the opposite kind? From where then is love to come? Love for your enemy that is the way of liberty. From forgiveness. 
forgiven, they go free of you and you of them, and they are to you as sunlight on a green branch. You must not think of them again except as monsters like yourself, pitiable because unforgiving. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this story that, um, like all the parables, creates a world in which we are to step into, and it's a world of mercy, and it's a world of forgiveness, and a world of grace in which you call us to imagine forgiving not seven times, but 70 times seven times. And in so doing, we participate and remember your mercy. Lord, help us to see um, ourselves and to see you truthfully as we remember your mercies well, as we tell others about them freely and with joy. Help us offer forgiveness. Um, because if we don't, we'll be monsters. Um, liberate us, Lord. Free us from our debt and from uh, holding others in debt. We love you and we thank you for your word that challenges us, that cuts us, and that heals us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.